0: Hi everyone and welcome back to the Making Milestones podcast. I thought today's topic would be a fun and informative topic to speak on because it's One of the more common things i see people talking about in the horse world online and otherwise and there's a lot of misinformation surrounding it so i wanted to do a topic where i basically compare and contrast positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement or as most people know it pressure and release which is the most common style of training in the horse world uh and just talk about some like myths facts and myths about both types of training and common misconceptions because i just find that there's a whole lot of rampant incorrect knowledge on equine behavior and behavioral science and it results in a lot of misinformation being spread around by people who are trying to portray themselves as experts on the topic to the point where they'll just like blatantly just like oh no like I've worked with a lot of horses this is just true man like this is true horses think this way and it's It's confusing because you have so many people that just eat this stuff up and then they take on these incorrect ideas for the rest of their life with horses unless someone challenges them to reconsider how they think of things. So I thought this was a good topic to discuss because I think that there's an inherent bias and like a really weird attitude towards clicker training and positive reinforcement in the horse world like to the point where people get like oddly defensive for no reason like even if you're just like hey like look at this other way to teach this behavior that is less stress inducing and people will just like lose their minds and be like, Oh, well, that just teaches bad habits. And they work so much harder trying to think of reasons uh, as to why literally the most proven and um, successful form of training is not that. Uh, and, And it's just crazy. Like it's, it's crazy talk because there's just so much research out there on all different types of species showing which types of methodologies are actually the most likely to bring success and also the most likely to decrease risk of injury for both animal and person. So it's so interesting to see the attitude surrounding this because it's just, it's coming from a place of uh, complete ignorance. And I don't think that most people are even necessarily aware of how ignorant they are on the topic, which is the sad thing. But, um, yeah, it, it causes a lot of unnecessary arguments in the horse world and also a lot of problems with how people handle their horses because there's just such a pervasive lack of understanding of how the methods that they are applying actually work and affect the horse. And when you're training, you do need to be aware of how your methods are actually working because if you don't understand the reason why pressure and release works or the reason why positive reinforcement works and how reinforcers work, you're going to be really limited in actually training well because you don't actually understand. What you are doing. Um, You kind of might realize oh, if I do this, this happens, and from trial and error, might learn what might work for you and your horse but it's not going to work on every horse if it's methods that aren't particularly successful and this is where people run into problems where they might get 10 horses that they're able to do certain methods on but then they get one that it completely backfires on and then you're stuck and you're in a position where you have a horse that just keeps regressing and needs to be sent off to training or ends up not being suitable because the methods that people have learned for their the course of their whole lives just aren't successful in certain types of horses um And this is why, for troubleshooting purposes, being aware of, like, how your methods work and any of the fallbacks and pros and cons of them, like that'll help you avoid potential disaster and it'll also help you troubleshoot when things don't go properly. But since we're not really instilling these values into riders and actually teaching them how to think critically, we have a lot of people who have been made completely and utterly reliant on self-proclaimed professionals in the horse world because they can't think for themselves. They just parrot what their trainers have told them um, and believe it blindly even when there's the absence of evidence on their side or even when there's overwhelming evidence on the other side showing. Why it's perhaps not the best idea, or even when other people try to explain it to them thoughtfully. Like people get so stuck in their ways because they're taught by people that they really trust that certain things are okay, and yeah, it, it just it it sets people back and it causes more problems than what it's worth. So I wanted to talk about both because one of the things that I find online with like with posts that I make is people commonly think that I'm anti-pressure and release, which is just so absurd because. Realistically, the only thing that I really criticize about pressure and release is the harshest forms of it being applied, where people are getting super, super loud and aggressive with the amount of pressure that they're adding. And then it becomes fear provoking and stressful for the horse. Um, But that's not what all pressure and release is. So it's really interesting to me how if you criticize, things being applied poorly or certain pieces of equipment that take things to an unnecessarily harsh level. It's so commonly framed by all sorts of horse people as you attacking like the entire idea as a whole and being like this is completely abusive and bad and cannot ever be performed properly when really it's the criticism of doing things the wrong way or doing things in a historically unnecessarily stressful way that we've been taught to do and now we know better and we know how to apply these things better and it's not being applied to the scale that it should be by now with the amount of information that we have have out so my issue is not with pressure and release and there's this huge misunderstanding that like my advocacy for welfare and positive reinforcement and using more rewarding forms of training means that i am completely against pressure and release and i'm like a purist positive reinforcement only trainer which is like a fallacy in itself because realistically like even a positive only trainer is going to end up at some point at least applying negative punishment in their program whether they do it intentionally or not Um, And realistically, a lot of people also probably use negative reinforcement, whether they do it intentionally, repeatedly, or use it as like a key component in their training, there's probably going to be instances where this happens. And even with positive punishment, which a lot of people don't want to do and are swaying away from because of the welfare implications, positive punishment is the addition of an unpleasant stimulus to discourage a behavior. So usually with horses, this is like hitting, smacking, yelling, like backing them up, chasing them in a circle, so on and so forth. A lot of people are swaying away from this because there's a lot of follow behaviors that can occur. But even with positive punishment, you can accidentally positively punish your horse without intending to. For example, your horse approaches you while you're turning and you accidentally elbow them in the nose. This is going to have a punishing effect, even though it was not at all intentioned to be that way uh, or intended to be that way. You did it by accident, but it'll still have a punishing effect. And of course, that's not occurring in training. So it's not really an indicator of the training program. But my point is that you can't really be purist anything in behavioral science, because at some point, whether you intend to or not, there's going to be other types of, um, Things at play within your training program, be it like negative punishment, which is the removal of something pleasant to punish a behavior, which means making a behavior less likely to reoccur, um, or pressure and release, which is negative reinforcement, the addition of an aversive stimulus to make a behavior more likely to re, or sorry, the removal of an aversive stimulus to make a behavior more likely to reoccur. And then positive reinforcement, of course, is the addition of a pleasant stimulus to make a behavior more likely to reoccur. So all reinforcers by nature reinforce a behavior, which means that it makes it more likely to reoccur. Uh, so with this in mind, like reinforcers are key in training and they need to stay and remain in your training program in order to keep behaviors fr- to, to continue occurring. Like they need to be You need to continue to reinforce in in order to upkeep the behaviors that you're training. Um, And this is one of the main arguments that I see against positive reinforcement, where people will go like, oh, well, like, what if you run out of treats, then what? And it's like... That's as stupid as saying, What if you run out of pressure? What if you can no longer use pressure on your horse? And if you say that to people who train with pressure and release, they get really defensive and they're like, Well, like, obviously, that would never happen. Like, I always have pressure. I always have my tools. And it's like, Okay, great. If you can always have like your bridle, your reins, your saddle, or yourself, or a whip, or a rope, or whatever on hand to train your horse, and you recognize that it's a necessary component of training to have that, or even just like your body adding pressure and release, you recognize that that's necessary for training and you need it to continue reinforcing behaviors and have the behavior stick, then it should not be hard to wrap your head around the idea that someone who's using positive reinforcement will be motivated to have some type of positive reinforcer, be it food or tactile scratches or something the horse likes to reinforce a behavior even intermittently. But here's the comparison that I wanted to draw between pressure and release, negative reinforcement, and positive reinforcement just to help people to understand how it actually works with positive reinforcement and how kind of similar it is to negative reinforcement in the sense that you're gradually building duration and gradually shaping a behavior to becoming one that is more than the behavior that you're starting with. So, for example, with negative reinforcement, when you're teaching a horse to move forward under saddle and move off of leg, initially, when you're shaping the behavior of like teaching them that leg pressure means go forward, you're just teaching them leg pressure means go forward. When I go, when I put my leg on, you're going to go forward. But eventually, as they become more schooled, Hold, leg pressure can mean go sideways, leg pressure can mean like go into the bridle a little bit more, leg pressure can mean pick up your canter, leg pressure can mean a number of different things and you're teaching them all of these nuanced cues that have slight variations but all stem from the same initial cue that you've been teaching using pressure. And when you're starting a horse under a saddle for the first time, you wouldn't get on them and put your leg on and expect them to do a side pass or leg yield over to the rail or pick up their canter perfectly because they haven't learned it, and you wouldn't expect them to do the full scope of the behavior immediately because you haven't shaped that behavior yet. The same applies with positive reinforcement. So when you're rewarding for behaviors, in the beginning, you have to reward way more frequently, just like with pressure and release. In the beginning, when you're teaching your horse how to move off of leg, and you put that leg on, you'd want to remove the leg if they even take one step forward, or even if they shift their weight forward, because that's a step in the right direction of the behavior that you'd want to teach. So you're not going to wait for them to do a bunch of things at once, because it would be frustrating, like if you're doing training well, that is, because it'd be frustrating. You don't want to put your leg on and expect them to jump right up to a trot when you first sat on them, and they basically don't. Don't know anything. You want to put your leg on, ask for basically one step at a time and remove the pressure immediately as they start to make that move. With positive reinforcement, it's the same thing when you're teaching behaviors. You want to reward every little step towards the behavior that you're trying to shape, but then as they get it, your expectations can increase. So, while you might be training, let's say you're target training your horse or you're training them to follow you and step forward with you when you take a step. Initially, you might be rewarding them every step they make or even when they just shift their weight forward and like are thinking about walking with you, you might click and reward that. But as they start to get it and follow you and step with you or follow the target, then you might start waiting until they offer you like five steps before you reward them. And then eventually it'll be 10 steps or all the way around the arena or so on and so forth. So, you're gradually building the duration. So, while you're still using food to reinforce the behavior, it's not being used at the same frequency as it is when you're training the behavior. You use it for maintenance to maintain the behavior over time, not for training over all these little steps. So, the duration gets longer and longer and then you're not rewarding as frequently. So, even though you're still using the same reinforcers, You're not using them as frequently, so it's not a situation where it's like, oh, well, what if you run out of food? Because something like that is as absurd as being like, oh, well, like, what happens if all of your tack went poof and your horse and you were just in the middle of nowhere and you had nothing to control them with um, by using pressure? A lot of people don't consider what they would do in that situation because it's not a very realistic situation that they have to consider. And on top of that, when you train horses using positive reinforcement and the behaviors stick, they're not just doing it for the food. They learn to have a pleasant association with the behavior itself. So they're not always doing a behavior expecting an immediate reward because they've been trained to develop duration. They know the cues. They know the behavior and then they're offering the behavior and they have a more pleasant association with it because of how it's been conditioned. And they're not always expecting that reward once you've built that duration. So... You don't really need to worry about that because the behavior is still there, whether you have food to immediately reward it or not. However, if you stopped rewarding the behavior altogether and you weren't reinforcing the behaviors anymore, be it with like a reward or pressure and release, the behaviors would cease to exist, whether you're using positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement, because you have to continue reinforcing and conditioning that behavioral response in order to have it not go extinct. If you stop asking the animal to do all these things and just don't train it at all, and stop giving them any incentive to want to do that or to have to do that, then the behavior won't stick. So... That applies to any form of training. You need to continually reinforce behaviors to have them stay and maintain consistency and also maintain accuracy and how well the horse performs them. So that's something that's applicable to both pressure and release and positive reinforcement, but I notice a disproportionate amount of criticism towards people who choose to use rewards-based training and clicker training um, from people who use traditional methods because they like to try to poke holes in the logic of literally the most scientifically proven training method that is available to us by claiming that there's some like that that there's some weakness that if you don't have access to food that you're going to crash and burn when really it's just a different thinking process because most of these people in traditional programs aren't considering the idea of like oh what if i don't have x piece of equipment that i use to ride my horse and have never ridden them without like do you realize how many people would be screwed if they couldn't ride in a bridle anymore and they had to do a neck rope their horses wouldn't listen um and if you said oh well what if you didn't have a bridle anymore they'd get super offended and they'd probably start getting heated at you because they know damn well they can't ride their horse without a bridle. And they don't want to have that argument, but then they're willing to do that to other people with their training um, when it's completely illogical. So I think that's a good way of considering it if you're wanting to learn like how pressure and release works versus how positive reinforcement works with both you gradually build duration you're not just throwing the behaviors at the horse at full intensity and with both you're continually reinforcing the behaviors like every time you ride your horse with pressure and release and release that pressure you're reinforcing those behaviors and maintaining the consistency of those behaviors by using pressure and release as reinforcement every single time and that's something that you have to do to maintain them if you stopped taking pressure off and you just kept it on the whole time, your horse would not respond the same way. Similarly, if you just stopped using any pressure and just expected your horse to know what you wanted them to do, the behaviors wouldn't stick. So it's a necessity in any type of trainings and neither form of training particular has a weakness over the fact that you need to continually reinforce behaviors using them because that applies to literally any type of training. You need to continue to use reinforcers if you want behaviors to stick and if you want your animals to learn something and have motivation to train. Um, So that's one of the arguments against positive reinforcement that really doesn't make any sense, and it stems from a place that is a lack of understanding of behavioral science because it's just asinine because they're arguing something that is equally applicable to their style of training. Like, if we're arguing what would happen if we stop using reinforcers, we're all screwed. We all would cease to have behaviors stick. We all would have horses that wouldn't listen or perform well because we've stopped reinforcing them. It doesn't matter whether you're a clicker trainer or a pressure and release-based trainer. Now, with that said... What I will say is that one of the shortcomings that I've noticed anecdotally with um, po- uh, not positive reinforcement with uh, negative reinforcement, and that has also been reflected in study, is that, like, the level of motivation from the horses is typically lower, and if you have a horse who is not particularly sensitive to pressure and doesn't move off of it fairly easily and doesn't really care, the degree of the aggression and, like, loudness that you might have to use to finally get a response can sometimes be so harsh that it's, like, stressful and scary for the horse, or they'll get frustrated, Um, and this is one of the biggest weaknesses I've noticed with negative reinforcement because with horses that are a little bit more dull and don't care as much about things you have to get a lot louder and like angrier and just like chasing them and just adding more and more pressure until you finally get that response and can remove it and that doesn't always go well because it can result in horses that get frustrated and then display aggressive behaviors at you because they're frustrated and they're trying to increase their distance from you by scaring you away and it also can create horses that are distressed and become scared of people because they essentially have to keep getting things thrown at them more loudly and loudly until they finally give a response. With horses who are responsive in a non-stressful way to low amounts of pressure, it doesn't necessarily have to get as loud because you can use non-escalating forms of pressure. But with non-escalating pressure, this doesn't necessarily work with all horses if they really don't care because some horses will just sit there and take non-escalating pressure and not have it bother them enough and not have it be aversive enough where they're actually moving away from the pressure. They might be in stressed a little bit, but it's not enough to get that movement. And then that's where you have to escalate more and potentially have it get a lot louder to the point where it is less ethical. Um, And that's where I found huge value in positive reinforcement because to motivate horses like that when they're dull like that, those types of horses are usually really food motivated. And if you can kind of entice them to start offering you movement that way, it's less stressful for them and then you can link it to a tactile cue. That's the other thing that I find a lot of people don't understand about positive reinforcement and that I also didn't understand in the beginning is that there's this idea that not using negative reinforcement in terms of pressure and release in training means that you don't use any pressure when that's not the case. You can teach pressure-based cues using positive reinforcement, and they can mimic the same cues that you see using negative reinforcement, but how they were trained and ingrained in the brain of the horse is what is inherently different. So, for example, a leg cue taught using negative reinforcement would have been taught using pressure and leaving it on until the horse, or doing like the non-escalating, like tap, 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 until the horse moves forward, and then you immediately take off the pressure when the horse offers to move forward. Whereas with positive reinforcement, you could, initially teach that movement under saddle by having the horse follow a target and then pairing that with the leg cue you teach the target from the ground so they know the target and then once you have a rider up you'd start pairing the leg cue with the presence of the target so that when the horse steps forward to follow the target you have your leg on and then you immediately remove it when they take that step and then you're installing that tactile cue but it was not taught using pressure and release and that's how horses trained using positive reinforcement can learn essentially the exact same cues as horses trained using pressure and release just the way that it was gone about being taught is inherently different and then it results in different pathways in the brain because positive reinforcement engages the seeking system in the horse because they're actually seeking a reward whereas with negative reinforcement they're looking to move away from something that is aversive so it's different systems in the brain and there's a different association in the brain and there's different chemicals in the brain release and different pathways created so the way in which the behavior was taught changes how the horse feels about it. And it's not about the absence of pressure when you're using positive reinforcement. And I recognize that a lot of the ways that trainers can come across when they're promoting positive reinforcement may make it seem that way. Because I initially felt that way too when I started seeing this movement go on online, I felt attacked, I felt targeted, I felt like they were saying, like, absolutely no pressure, and I was like, how unrealistic and absurd is that? And some of them were a bit that way, and they really did take a hard line and did the whole purist thing, and it was kind of uncomfortable and not my favorite thing to listen to, but most of them weren't actually saying that. I think it was just the defensiveness on the people from the other side, which I was included in that. You read it in a defensive, like you read it in an antagonistic voice because you're already defensive because it's questioning beliefs that you've had ingrained in you from childhood and really believe and you don't know other ways of doing things at this point. So you can't really actually comprehend the full scope of the situation because you're uneducated and you can't consider all sides. And that's not an insult. Like I'm speaking for myself in this regard too because because I didn't fully understand it and it led me to perceiving things differently than how people actually met that meant them and it resulted in me being a lot more defensive and thinking that they were saying things that they actually were not saying um and the other thing that I think people need to consider with horse training is like when we're talking about animals and training like the perception of the learner the horse is what matters the most so when we're talking about ethicality of training and what is most ethical and kind to the horse, the opinions of the riders and what they like to do and what their experiences are don't really matter because we're talking about how the horse interprets it. And people who don't want to change what they're doing and who have grown comfortable with certain methodologies have a lot of bias and a lot of incentive to protect to, to protect those methodologies, even at the expense of their horse. And in addition to that, due to the amount of misinformation in the horse world, we have a lot of people who've been so misled that they're operating on complete myth and they're using that to justify their personal beliefs which means that they're not coming from a place of reality and they're not coming from a place of understanding and this also has been depicted in studies where we've we've surveyed all all sorts of riders be it like pleasure riders amateur riders Lesson riders, people who don't own horses, horse owners, upper level riders of all types. And the studies have found that people in the horse world are notoriously unable to accurately read equine behavior and they commonly refer to stress and pain signals as normal horse behaviors or quirks. And this has been something that has been repeatedly shown. In studies and on a fairly large scale, and also just like from operating in the horse world, if you talk to anyone in the behavior sphere who has done the legwork to learn more about equine behavior and the situations going on in the industry they'll tell you that it is it holds up anecdotally like a lot of people will have horses who are chronically stressed and even actively engaging in like clear stereotypic behaviors on their own time and they will deny that it's due to stress because it's easier to make up some other reason than it is to come to terms with the fact that their horse might not be happy and this is a rampant issue and people do it to protect themselves but it occurs at the expense of the horse so when we're talking about training like and I think this is where I run myself into trouble online because I look at things quite objectively and it's not about pointing fingers and being like oh you're an abuser or you're doing this or you're doing that but like for example talking about negative reinforcement and referencing it as aversive that's what it is scientifically like the it would not work I've said this in my last podcast so I don't want to repeat this too much but it would not work to remove something as a reinforcer if it wasn't aversive because then the removal of it would be punishing if the horse actually wanted it to be there. So, it has to be aversive. But aversive doesn't mean abusive. It just means, like, uncomfortable at most. It doesn't necessarily even need to be painful or fear-inducing. Like, it can be a low grade of just minor irritation. But by default, it's aversive, and people take offense to that because they don't like the idea of using aversives on their horse, but then it's like if you're going to use that in your form of training, denying it and lying to yourself and completely rewriting the actual facts surrounding a form of training to protect yourself, it's not helping your horse. All you're doing is feeding into a delusion to help yourself feel better um, at the expense of your horse. And it doesn't change the facts surrounding it. It just means that you're denying information. And a lot of people do that. I did it as well because it's easier to protect yourself and it's easier to deny and pretend that these people don't know where they're coming from. But there's significant research. And since that, it's something that touches on so many more species than just horses. And like it's been tested on similar species to horses, but also all different types of animals with similar results it's pretty profound the information that there is to support using rewards-based methods to motivate animals and the reason why I'm so passionate about speaking on this type of stuff is because it's still so frowned upon in the horse industry that I think we've largely left untapped the potential horses actually have because our entire relationship and basis with them is based on making them do what we want and forcing them to do what we want and not really considering their comfort and well-being to the fullest degree and they still perform with that for us despite the level of stress that the average horse is under and how unideal the living situation is. They still perform for us and do all these amazing athletic feats and can learn so many things. So in my opinion the training in the horse world is so untapped. The potential of horses is so untapped because we've not fully tapped into the idea of actually motivating them to want to do what we're asking them to do and rewarding them and providing them with an incentive to want to do it. And I think that once we do that and that becomes a large scale thing, in addition to considering living situations and making that better for the horses, I think we're going to notice a huge change in how horses respond to people and what we're actually able to teach them and the level of success that they demonstrate. And we're seeing this in so many different aspects of the horse world already where we're seeing mass change like for example a lot of show jumpers are now taking their horses barefoot and there's a lot of upper level show jumpers who've attested to the fact that the horses who are barefoot are more sound they jump better they're more successful they have more athletic potential and they're doing a lot better and we've seen similar trends with people who have started to use positive reinforcement or reconsidered living situations to provide horses with more of a herd lifestyle they've seen these same improvements and also those improvements are depicted in study so really Realistically, the stagnation for like learning is largely related to the average horse person just not wanting to believe the facts surrounding it until someone who is high profile enough in the community and doing enough cool show things to impress them says that it's cool enough and um, that they should try it or until enough people change and decide to do these newfangled things so that people finally decide to consider whether or not it's worth them trying it. Uh, but there, there's a huge resistance against this information. And I think it comes from a place of people seeking to protect themselves and their own egos and not actually wanting to realistically look at the situation that we're in. Um, and it's it's slowing us down and it's, it's damaging our ability to use the horses to their full potential and to have it be as harmonious and safe for every single one of us as it could be. And it comes from a lack of education. And that's the most frustrating part, because when you have a huge portion of the population, um, of any industry that is believing the same misinformation and doesn't want to believe facts and just writes off study or science as like, oh, well, you can't train in a lab. Um, they'll say they, they, they don't understand how the scientific process works. They're not willing to look at the information because they've already made up their minds. Um, And when you have a huge portion, like, arguably even a majority in the horse world that thinks of things this way, the sheer number of people willing to believe that gives it credibility in their eyes because they're like, oh, well, like, everyone I know does it this way, so it must not be able to be done another way. And then the more exciting forms of training that cause horses more stress or get them to do more things immediately typically get more airtime, so you don't see as much of the newer ways of doing things getting as much attention as they should because people are trying to bury them because it makes them uncomfortable. Like, I don't know, even within the last two or three years, I had so many people tell me I was stupid and didn't know what I was talking about when I was talking about the whole barefoot thing and saying that more horses could go barefoot um, because I didn't used to feel that way um, and I was very much like a shoe person. And I said that, like, even upper-level horses could go barefoot a couple years ago, and I had a lot of people argue with me and just call me stupid and be like, you've never competed at that level or worked with horses of that caliber, so you know nothing, like, you're speaking out your ass and just, like, insulting me because I'm not competing or riding at that level or working, like, with horses who are, I guess, um... And it was very degrading and elitist and kind of just weaponizing the fact that I don't have the revenue to show at those levels and be like a part of the community in the same way as other people who have access. And then two years later, or like a year and a half later, we have the Olympics and the horses who are winning at the Olympics in show jumping are all barefoot. And so many other trainers in show jumping coming forward, having transitioned their horses barefoot. And you don't see these same people saying those things anymore and you don't see them admitting to ever having said those things because now they've kind of had to eat their words and pretend that they were never said. Um, and this is why I like to talk about my past mistakes as well because I like to own up to where I've said stupid things or believed in stupid things that have ended up being untrue because that's kind of part of the learning process. Like you don't know what you don't know until you know. Um, and it's more of a weakness to continue doing the wrong thing for years to protect your ego, um, just just for that, than it is to admit when you're wrong and change, uh, even if you've done things wrong for. Quote unquote, too long. Like it's better to stop doing things when you find out than it is to just keep doing them in fear of admitting that you've made a mistake. And I find that a lot of horse people fall in the lane of not wanting to admit that they've ever made a mistake and viewing it as a weakness to admit to that. And then this ego leads to a lot of mistreatment of horses and a lot of justified mistreatment of horses. Because the other thing that I think that people need to recognize and, and admit to themselves about horses is that, like, historically, horses have been work animals. They've been work horses. We've used them for transportation. We've used them for war. We've used them for farm work. And it's only really been re- in recent years that they've started to be, like, a luxury animal and a, an animal used for sport and competition um, and, like, a pet. It, it wasn't like that before because they were needed as work animals. And that intended use really shaped our treatment of them because it was about what was practical for keeping them in an, in good enough shape to continue their use keeping them usable training them how to be usable easily and efficiently and also using the knowledge we had about them at the time, which again, like our our relationship with horses is largely based in just getting them to do what we want them to, and not really about motivating them and rewarding them, because for many, many years, the assumption was that horses aren't that intelligent, and we're now realizing how wrong that is and how many things that they can actually learn, um, and how highly intelligent and like empathetic and emotional of a species they are. People didn't believe that. They thought that horses couldn't feel things, they thought that they didn't have a emotions. they thought that they were big dumb farm animals and that along with the fact that they were work animals was what was the mindset behind a lot of the equipment that we've created for them and a lot of their intended use and I think it's ignorant for any horse person to assume that like the horse's welfare and the horse's comfort has been at the the forethought of our use of them for all these years because it hasn't been. Like, human convenience has been um, keeping people alive, keeping horses able to be used and do things for the tasks we ask them to do have been. But since horses are so stoic and also good at masking pain and they have a lot of subtle stress behaviors that we weren't aware of until more recently, it was a lot easier for people to just ignore how horses were actually feeling and not be aware of how the equipment impacts them. And then also write their own dialogue of how the horse feels about certain things based off of how the person thinks the horse feels, which isn't really based in the reality of how horses actually feel. Um, and depict their behaviors and I like some people could say that like behavioral science research of horses is humans perceptions of how horses feel which sure technically they're writing they're writing the perception of the horse based off of research but it's hours and hours of watching the horses and testing things while they're testing like blood cortisol samples and actual like genetic not genetic actual like chemical markers of stress and other things and just watching like what happens before and after horses exhibit a certain behavior which allows them to link certain behaviors to certain emotions and feelings pretty reliably so while there is some margin of error there's a way harder higher margin of error for people who are just basing how they feel uh, about horses off of their preconceived biases and anecdotal experience with horses because they're not looking at it through the same unbiased eye um, with hours of actually watching horses with the intention of understanding them not just getting them to do their intended use uh, and research and label that that's what researchers are doing the average horse person isn't Um, and the average equestrian also has motivation to relabel stress behaviors as being something else because admitting to them for what they are would potentially change how they feel about their sport and their use of the horse. So... Now that we've started using horses differently and becoming more conscious of their emotions, to a lot of people it can feel like it's like some hippie movement where like people are making things up and taking things to an extreme. But the reality is like how we've treated horses has been to such an extreme on the end of like forcefulness and not considering how they are and also not taking care of them in a species appropriate way. So when you start to move to the other direction it's going to feel like a stark difference because we're going from people literally never considering these things to considering them a lot a lot more and starting to reevaluate a lot of old practices, which can then feel like it's a witch hunt and attack because these are things that have existed for longer than the more empathetic mindset has. But really, it's people just questioning a lot of old biases and things that they were taught and just taught to not even turn a blind eye at and just shrug off and just ex- see as the normal. People are now learning more and they're becoming liberated by that knowledge and wanting to change things and do better because they're seeing the difference that it makes in their horses. And I, for one, firmly believe that if a lot of the people who talk down about modern horse training and like modern behavior science and like things that we're learning about horses and like the criticisms that come with that of like modern horse care training practices and competitive practices the people who look down on that I think are more concerned about their their place in the horse world shifting and they're responding from a place of fear about that it's not anything to do with the fact that they actually view the information as wrong in my opinion I think in their gut they probably know it's right and that's why there is such a visceral reaction to certain information or certain criticisms of certain equipment and whatnot and I think that that's one of the one of the also the big problems in the horse world because horse people identify so heavily with certain types of equipment and training methods like for example draw reins or leverage bits elevator bits, like twisted wire snaffles um shambons neck stretchers they'll identify so heavily with these equipment that when the equipment is criticized they take it as a personal attack and then they're fighting for their lives trying to defend this piece of equipment which honestly like from my experience when I was doing that it was a guilty response to try to defend stuff something to that level especially when I was supposedly arguing with someone that I thought knew nothing um and It was because I was trying to defend my right to use it, rather than the fact that the equipment wasn't was or wasn't kind. Uh, And a lot of people do this, and I think that we need to start asking ourselves, like, why is my identity as an equestrian tied so heavily to the bit that I use, or the draw reins that I use, or certain types of equipment that I put on my horse? Like, why do I identify so heavily with this piece of equipment that when someone makes a criticism, my first response is to defend the, the the equipment and not consider the criticism, and not consider any information behind the criticism, but just to blindly defend the equipment and attack anyone who quote-unquote attacks the equipment that you use. Um, It's odd to identify that heavily with the equipment you use, because it's just equipment. If it's just equipment that's being used to communicate with the horse, in theory, if there is potentially something better that's kinder or safer for the horse, or that will be kinder or safer for you, or that will produce results that are more ethical, like, that really should be something that anyone's open to. Like, if we're truly in this sport for our horses, we shouldn't be so heavily identifying with equipment that we use that we're willing to defend it blindly without any real purpose and refuse to consider the fact that there's probably room for improvement. Uh, Because I would argue with most things there's room for improvement. Like, unless people truly believe we're at our peak level of intelligence and knowledge right now, there's not possibly anything we can learn or improve with what we already have learned there's always going to be room for improvement in certain areas. Like, as far as horse bridles, bits, saddles, um, different types of equipment, like draw reins, barn gills, and so on. There's so much room for improvement when it comes to horse comfort and ethics and welfare because, like I said, a lot of this equipment was never invented with that in mind initially and it's only been recently that more anatomical bit types have been coming out and different types of kinder equipment and bridles made to be more comfy on the face of the horse and so on and so forth. It's been recently that all this stuff has started happening because riders are starting to demand that more so then producers of equipment are making it because there's more demand for it whereas before that wasn't being prioritized as much and when you're not prioritizing something it's highly unlikely that we're gonna be at the pinnacle of like completely mastering what is ethical and uncomfortable for the horse because it's only even something we've recently started considering, which means that there's a lot of room for further research and improvement of all types of equipment and horse care and training. And there's always going to be. And, Here's the thing, like with my training, like if I end up being wrong and research comes out that says positive reinforcement sucks and that negative reinforcement is better and more ethical, I'll eat my words at that point. But until there's actually incredible information heavily pointing that to that side, there's no reason for me to believe that or stick to my guns on that side on the off chance that enough information comes to counteract the information we already have on the other side that is so credible. Um, And the same goes for my feelings about equipment. Like saddles bridles bits etc like horses don't really like I, I I live by the mind that I don't really think horses actually like like any of this equipment like even wearing a halter I think horses are indifferent to the halter itself but they might like what the halter predicts like so for my horses when I catch them usually it predicts going to training and getting rewards or getting to go do something interesting or going for a walk or something so they like the halter because they know that it predicts something that they find exciting do they actually like get joy out of wearing the halter itself no probably Probably not. Would they prefer to be living without a halter on? Probably because having one on all the time, they tend to sweat under it when it's hotter and it's not as comfortable. And that's a halter. A halter is not particularly aversive or anything, but they're still indifferent to it. And then when we get to talking to bits, again, this is not an argument against bits. I still ride horses in bits. I've really changed the types of bits that I'd be willing to ride in over the years because I used to ride in grotesquely harsh equipment. but with that said, like, I don't think horses like this. Like I said, at most, I think they're indifferent to them. At most, I think they tolerate them. I don't think they get any explicit joy specifically from a bit. And if they do, it's going to be a short-lived joy where they might want to pick one up and chew on it and like flail it around like a toy for a little bit and then drop it if they fully have the choice. However, they can learn to like the association with the bit. So, if they learn, hey, when I get to go wear a bit, I get to go on a cool trail ride with my friends, or I get to go cut cattle, or I get to go do something that I find otherwise enjoyable. Then they can like the association with the bit or the bridle. But the bit itself is just there, it's just communication, it's just equipment. And, like, I would also use the same thing with like dogs, like a dog doesn't like a collar until they learn what the collar is associated with. And usually a collar means you're going outside, we're going for a walk, we're going somewhere cool, we're doing something. And then the dogs are like, oh, great. Yay. And that's kind of how most animals work. Like the equipment is for the person, like using a halter. It's to use horses within the lens of the safety of the people so that you're not just having loose horses running around. And it's for the horse's safety as well with for living in like the human world. It's not for the horse's um, needed behavioral standards. It's to accommodate living in a humanistic world. Um, and bits, for example, too, it's to accommodate their use with people. It's not for them. It's not for their comfort and mind because anatomically in the mouth, like, a lot of the stuff that we've made for them over the years bit-wise hasn't really taken that into account and there's a lot of examples available in study of bit damage and stress from wearing bits with horses because of how they've been used and because of how um, enabled people are in buying certain types of harsher bits just to continue amassing more control of their horse Um, and That means that there's no shortage of things on the market that you can just immediately have access to to throw in your horse's mouth without any concern of how the mechanics might actually work on your horse beyond like, oh, this pulls my horse's head down faster and they don't yank my arms off as much when we're jumping. So this is great for me. Most people don't really consider their equipment choices beyond that. and If their horse goes for them better under saddle, they're motivated to immediately just go, oh, my horse is going around better in this. So it must mean that my horse likes it because they're more willing to do what I want them to do when really like obedience and compliance like that's not an indicator of welfare or comfort and they've actually also done studies on that like horses willingness to do things doesn't really speak for their emotions on how they feel about it or if they're in pain or if they're anxious uh so with that in mind like there's just there, we don't really have a whole lot of incentive to try to justify equipment to the point that we do and again this is not an anti-bit sentiment but I've kind of moved towards the mindset that if we're gonna use bits on horses we should really be considering like how they're made whether or not they're anatomical to the mouth and kind of going at it from the perspective of using like dental grade materials and using things with the mindset of like this is going into a mouth it's going around teeth tongues and other soft palates let's make it as comfortable as we would if we were freaking working on human mouths in in the dental industry because I don't know about you like I fucking hate going to the dentist and having them shove shit in my mouth um, that I actually consented to having put in my mouth by simply being there and I could also vocalize hey please stop I need a break from this and they would stop but I still hate it because I don't have full control over what they're actually doing to me and like the equipment that's being put in my mouth um, from the standpoint of my personal comfort And I know that horses' mouths are not human mouths, but I think that using the dentist as an example is a great way to kind of help people perhaps consider in their heads how it might feel to a horse to have a foreign object put in their mouth that might have mechanics that are intended to cause them discomfort in the first place even when no one's pulling on the reins and then also potentially have a noseband or a flash or something done up tight so they also can't move their mouth around to try to get away from that object and even just that even if the object itself isn't sharp or causing deliberate pain even just the lack of autonomy to be able to open the mouth and kind of move around and maneuver it around to get more comfortable that could induce stress in itself because with people it's the same thing like autonomy really brings a lot of comfort and when you take that away there's less comfort so I'm of the mind that with like the equipment we use on horses I don't think that we should be leveraging discomfort and pain on a regular basis to get horses to do things I think that in some instances for safety like vet procedures or like if you're rehabbing a horse from injury and you don't you're not allowed to give them sedatives or whatever and you're using a chain or whatever or even for like short periods of time when a horse is dangerous and you're working on getting this to the point where they don't need it like whatever but I don't think it should be as common as it is in the horse world to use really highly aversive painful equipment to leverage control over these animals because we far too often use their size as a reason to hurt them before they hurt us despite the fact that there's a very high correlation with injury to humans around horses with horses who are more stressed and we know that harsh painful equipment has an association of stress when it's used on horses so we use equipment that stresses them out more which statistically endangers us more but horses being dangerous is also used as a reason to defend that equipment so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy um and We're never really going to be able to prove that it's that as easily to the average horse person until they actually start to see it for themselves. And unfortunately, people who are really closed off to doing things like the modern way and starting to really consider some of the new information that's getting put out, they don't even want to try these things. They've already decided they don't work and they'll make up excuses or pretend that they've tried positive reinforcement um, or science-based methods or pretend that they've read behavior studies or studied behavior as a reason to try to lend themselves credibility and pretend they know what they're talking about so they don't actually have to look further into things. And they never actually try it. And if you're never actually going to try using positive reinforcement to see if it works, and you're never actually going to be around people who've successfully applied it, it's pretty easy to trash talk it because then the only people you're surrounding yourself with are people who've already decided they don't like it and will trash it alongside you and share all the bad experiences they've had with it um, rather than the good. And on the flip side, like with negative reinforcement and traditional training, like literally go to any horse show. And tell me how many horses freaking out you see. Usually there's quite a lot. Usually there's quite a lot of horses that are engaging in behaviors that have the potential to be dangerous or not listening to their handlers or doing things that are potentially harmful to the person. They're everywhere. So the whole notion that like positive reinforcement is the problem that's ruining the horse world. and creating poorly behaved horses is so false because it speaks for such a small percentage of the horse world. um, And yet there's a high percentage of really poorly behaved, dangerous horses that are ending up at auctions and in other situations that put them in danger. Um, And if it was positive reinforcement that was contributing the most to that, it would be really clear. uh, And there wouldn't be as many horses at auctions if it was solely just from positive reinforcement trainers and people using rewards-based methods. Because There's less of them. There's way, way less. But we see so many problems in the traditional sphere of things that are justified and excuses are made for them for being like due to this that, or the other thing. Meanwhile, if like anyone sees like anyone's horse with positive reinforcement, literally do anything. Like I'm not even joking. Like I've had people criticize my training over my horse looking at grass and sl- like slightly pulling the leader rope towards grass, not yanking me, just looking and wanting to take a bite of grass. And they're like, "Oh, see, like they're not that well halter trained." Meanwhile, they'll defend trainers who have horses that are like trying to flip themselves over because they can't tie or need to get chased in the trailer with basically a cattle prod to get in or have horses that are being walked in lip chains or nose chains all the time, and they view that as perfectly normal and acceptable. There's such a dissonance, and it's truly the weirdest thing to watch because they'll defend so many forms of dangerous behaviors in horses and even use it as a reason to say that trainers are better trainers because they get more difficult horses, Um, but as soon as they see any instance of what they view as bad behavior, even if it's generally speaking at a much more subdued level than what is normalized in the traditional sphere. It's used as a reason to discredit, and it's because they don't want to support the movement. They are not actually looking for what's truthful; they're just looking to criticize a movement that they feel threatened by, um, and. I think more people need to be honest with themselves and try to look at where their emotions are coming from because, like, that's what I did and I'm saying all these things because I'm, like, very familiar with these types of emotions because I felt them myself when I was kind of grappling with feeling like I was between two worlds and growing up in like witnessing such mistreatment of horses being normalized and taught so many incorrect methods of teaching horses a variety of different behaviors and just riding them in a really unethical way that's how I grew up and I was how I was taught to handle horses so coming from that and then as you start to soften your methods and then there's just more and more stuff coming out that feels like it's attacking everything that you've ever done and things that you still do it's really hard to navigate and I felt kind of caught between two worlds and I felt like I was like being backed into a corner and I felt attacked and I responded as such um, often. So I can speak from experience and kind of point out where I think that a lot of this is motivated from because I was there and it was really only that through my like studying in school and whatnot and being reached by professors and other people who have so many Proof, like so much proof of their credentials and so many years of experience in the horse world and all types of areas of the horse world that was really what kind of started to shift my mind because the way that they taught was just matter of fact they just provided you with information you had access to a full university library's worth of studies to read on all sorts of things so any things that I wasn't clear on I was able to look up studies on or anything that I was curious about I was able to look up studies on and it really opened my mind with just how much misinformation I had been fed, and then I kind of wanted to just keep doing more courses, so I started taking more and more courses on all sorts of different things, but mostly specializing in behavior and, like, welfare and, like, the use of horses in sport, Um, and I kept learning more and more and more, and it was just, it was really neat because there is just so much stuff of value to learn, and it questioned a lot of my old biases, which started to kill them, and then It was really freeing in a way to kind of, yeah, realize that, like, a lot of the problems that I faced with horses and a lot of the frustrations that I felt were rooted in how I was handling them. And now I've been able to produce horses that are so much quieter and well-adjusted and also motivate horses in a way where they're happier and I don't have to get as loud. And we're both just emotionally so much happier because I'm not getting frustrated. Um, And I think, honestly, like, a lot of the times when I was getting really frustrated in training... I was feeding off of the horse's frustration and their anxiety because it was so palpable in the air that, like... I felt it and then I was uncomfortable and I would redirect that frustration back onto the horse because I had not been taught how to actually problem solve and troubleshoot things to the degree that I needed to and I really didn't understand what I was actually doing in training with my horses because I didn't understand anything about behavioral science, the application of behavior, or how horses actually learned. So I was just going through it blind and then when things didn't work, I was more likely to get frustrated because I had no idea how to troubleshoot and I was like, why isn't this working? I was taught that this would work, why is it not working? And then the horse is like the easy target for the frustration. And you're honestly encouraged by a lot of trainers to take out your frustration on horses. So I guess this is just kind of a rant and like a statement on like some of the attitudes in the horse world that I think enable a lot of the abuse that we see and a lot of the problems that we see. Because like the attitudes that we see relating to like the denial of science um, and like scientific advancement in the horse world and just like the really stubborn sticking to tradition those types of attitudes are behind a lot of other hateful stubborn behaviors in the world too so a lot of the other things in the horse world related to like elitism racism um like transphobia and all that stuff like it, it's related to the very same people denying science and denying statistics and denying the actual reality of things and creating their own reality because you with all those issues too, there's a lot of statistics exemplifying how very real those forms of hatred are, what contributes to them, and showing that a lot of people's preconceived notions about those topics are completely wrong and based off of complete bullshit. Um, So I think that This mindset is something that needs to be like exposed and talked about more. And people just need to be more honest with like admitting to their mistakes. Like realize that it's not a weakness. Like it's okay if you've changed how you feel about something over the years. You're not a hypocrite for doing that. If you used to ride in a double twisted wire gag last year, but this year you've decided to turn over a new leaf and want to use softer equipment. That's nothing to be ashamed of. You're not you're not failing. In fact, you're winning by admitting that you may have made a mistake and trying to do something better. Don't be ashamed of it own it and the more people that can see that happening I think it opens the door to show people like hey there's no shame in trying things a new way and sometimes it'll work a lot of the times it'll work to get softer and soften the way you do things and it'll be better for both you and the horse and there's no shame in trying to do things a new way and there's no shame in sharing the process like everyone's learning and a lot of people lie about and hide how many mistakes they're actually making um And it's silly because then there's this whole, like, pressure to be perfection on horse social media and in the horse world in general. And it's like, literally no one's perfect. So many people are screwing up on a daily basis because we're human. And a lot of people don't know what they think they know. And once they learn more, they realize, wow, I didn't know a lot of stuff when I thought I knew the most. And it's okay to be wrong. It really is. And we need to kind of get more comfortable with being wrong and sharing these things and discussing at length, like, how these attitudes are enabled and perpetuated because it otherwise it's not going to change like It is a problem that when you criticize any type of equipment or form of training, usually the first arguments that people bring up are just related to, like, oh, well, my horse is different or, like, I ride my horse this way or you don't ride my discipline so you don't understand until you've ridden every horse you don't understand. My hands are really soft. Like, all the arguments are, like, me, 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 me. I'm special. My horse is special. And it's basically trying to argue that these people have some sort of outlier of a horse that either, like, biomechanically doesn't reflect the horse species norms or mentally is different or that there's some god tier human who somehow overrides the mechanics of a bit that is intended to be harsh like the whole soft hands things in relation to bits is weird to me because if your hands are soft like soft hands shouldn't be seeking to be weaponized if you have soft hands you should want them to feel soft on the mouth and if that's the case you shouldn't be seeking out bits that intentionally um aggravate the amount of pressure in the mouth or have certain mechanics that are made to cause the horse more discomfort so they respond quicker. If you're looking for bits that do that then your hands aren't truly soft because you're seeking to make them harsher by the equipment that you use. So it doesn't matter if your hands are soft if you're using t- weapons you know like doesn't matter. If you want a bit that has harsh mechanics the harsh mechanics are still there no matter how soft your hands are and that's something that you need to consider because You're not a perfect person. People get left behind over jumps. They lose balance. They have bad days riding. Their horse might spook and they can catch them in the mouth. They might fall off and their horse can step on their reins and so on and so forth. And these are all things that you need to consider because the reality is no one's a perfect person and you can't completely always be out of your horse's way so if you're looking for equipment that intentionally puts you in their way more and has higher risk of discomfort then that's something that needs to be admitted to and it's a very easy way out to just be like I have soft hands I'm special I'm a good enough rider to ride in this anyone who can't ride in this ethically just sucks and can't ride and then it takes on this whole like note of pride where like The more harsh equipment you can use, the more proud of yourself you should be because it's an indicator of how soft your hands are when really it's the opposite because like I said, soft hands don't want to be weaponized. If you've got soft hands, you take pride in the fact that you're not deliberately causing horses pain and you shouldn't want to seek out equipment that does that. Honestly, looking at how the equipment you use acts on the horse is so important because even at rest, there's a lot of bits and nose setups and bridle setups that are used that even when the rider is not touching the reins will cause discomfort in the mouth because of how they fit or sit in the mouth or because of the actual physics of how the equipment works together. And this is why, like, pairing of nose bends and the bit you use also matters so much, because if you have, like, a nose bend that cranks the mouth shut with a bit that really amplifies pressure in the mouth, not only can the horse not open their mouth to escape it, but then they're dealing with increasing levels of pressure in their mouth and entirely reliant on the rider knowing when to give when the rider cannot perceive how the horse is feeling or really read their facial expressions to know how much discomfort they're in from when they're above them. And like I said, most riders are not adept at reading equine behavior. So, It's just there's too much of a margin for error. So this is where I'm like, you know, we need to soften the amount of equipment we have available and we need to stop making it such a huge market to provide all these quick fixes to riders that are at the expense of their horse's welfare and well being. Like we need to soften what we are doing and start to consider the horse more because that's not something that's been considered and a lot of people like to say they put their horse first and that the horse is their number one priority and that they love their horse and welfare is the priority. But then the behavior doesn't reflect it. So it's easy to say that about yourself, but if your first concern is defending yourself and the equipment that you use because you don't want to change um if that's your first concern in welfare discussions then you're not actually in this for your horse because people should be pausing for a second and considering like is there a way that this could be kinder to my horse is there a possibility that I'm harming my horse the answer is yes because even with humans we can communicate directly to each other um in a much easier way than you can with your horse. And we still hurt each other inadvertently, even with that, and cause each other harm and discomfort. And so, The idea that people cannot do that to their horses or that they're so adept at understanding what their horse wants and how their horse feels that they never make any mistakes is just such bs and we're holding ourselves to way too high of a step like we're holding ourselves to such a pedestal that it's just like unrealistic because that's not what's going to happen like if we can't even be nice to each other consistently without hurting the feelings of people we care about the idea that you can't ever do something that's not considerate of how a flight animal who's motivated to hide and mask the level of pain and discomfort they're in. The idea that we can't possibly do something to harm that without realizing, absurd. And a lot of the equipment out there, as I've said multiple times, is literally made with that intent. Like there's so much equipment that is on the market that is made with weaponizing, pressure and control or weaponizing pressure and discomfort for control of the horse so that riders can skip a bunch of steps and continue to ride their horses and push them up the levels without actually dealing with the behavioral or physical issues that are leading their horse to exhibit problem behaviors like rushing fences or doing certain things under saddle that make them less manageable even being heavy in the bit putting on a sharper bit on your horse because they're heavy in the mouth you're not teaching them the biomechanical aspects of how to actually carry their body with a rider and build the muscle to do it so they don't need you to carry their head you're just throwing on a harsher bit so that they just tense and that they're afraid to lean on it due to pain or throwing draw reins on so you can leverage their head down with a pulley system it's not actually addressing the factors that are leading to them struggling with whatever it is you're trying to teach it's just trying to leverage something to get it done quicker without actually getting the full scope of the result of what you're looking for which is a horse you can carry their own body correctly or a horse who is having rhythm and tempo up to jumps and not just like going fast and running off it's about actually building that, and a lot of people don't want to put the time in to build that, and they think that these shortcuts actually get them to the end goal when, while they might skip steps, they might get to get to where their goals are, it's going to be at the expense of their horse's long-term soundness, and I truly believe that a lot of these soundness issues and behavioral issues could be addressed if people were actually training the horse and addressing the issues in their training, the holes in the training, and building that foundation better rather than just trying to manufacture it quicker using equipment that doesn't factor in the rate at which horses build muscle or their comfort or what's best for them. It's about engineering a certain position so that the rider feels better about what they're doing and they're able to accomplish something faster. And then we've created this world of really impatient riders who are just on, like, so motivated to just get on to the next thing and do whatever the next most impressive thing is that they can flex online or in the show ring and get praised for even at the expense of their horse, and then this quick fix mentality just enables all of this other stuff that's not good for the horse. Like, it just, it teaches people not to care. Even the entire idea of, like, having people that are just basically riders, like, they don't tack their own horses most of the time, they don't brush their own horses when they're with their horses, they're there to ride, and they don't do much else other than riding with their horses. It's really hard to actually build empathy for an animal that you don't take the time to understand, and that you only get to know within one context. Like, If you only ride your horse, especially if you have people grooming it and tacking it for you every single time, you don't really know who they are as an individual because you only know them within the context of your rides. And horses and their individual personalities honestly usually come out more in their time off and when you're hanging out with them on the ground and not riding them because you're interacting with them more directly in a way that they are more likely to be able to understand better than under saddle, um, since that's like a very humanistic approach to things is riding them you're not likely to get to know them as well. And I think if more people spent more time with their horses, watching them in turnout and actually seeing what they did all day, especially if the horse isn't turnout, like you sat out at the barn for 12 hours a day and just saw your horse standing, staring at the wall all day in their stall, it might change how you feel about keeping them stalled for the vast majority of the day. Similarly, if you take time to actually groom your horse and tack them yourselves, you might notice where they are sore. Um, You might notice that they aren't happy to be girthed. You might notice that they're not particularly in tune with people or interactive with people and don't particularly have an interest in being there. Or if you spend time with them in their herd setting, you might learn how they interact with their friends and, like, what they actually do for fun, how they play, where their favorite itchy spots are, and you can learn all these things just by watching them. But people really only are taught how to learn about horses through the lens of riding them, which makes it really, really easy to ignore their feelings and ignore their needs and ignore a lot of things about how they are as creatures. And I think that's how we have kind of gotten to the point where we are in the horse world because a lot of people don't actually know about their horses on the full scope of how horses live. A lot of people that own horses and board them out don't even know what their horses are eating. They don't even know how to make their own diets. Um, Their trainers can be in charge of like who's shoeing their horse, who the vet is, and they have very little control over the whole thing. And they're not really taught how to critically think for themselves or how to do anything for themselves. They're basically conditioned to be utterly reliant on other people, which makes them easier to take advantage of. And it's easier to get money out of them because they can't do anything themselves. And a lot of do this, it's so common in show barns. This is how I grew up was the mentality I grew up in. They made all of my horses' feed plans, everything. And like honestly, the people doing all these things weren't really qualified to be doing what they were doing. They didn't know enough about equine nutrition, they didn't know enough about food. They put the horses on the wrong types of diets that would have made them more hot to ride and more difficult to handle and way too much grain, not what they needed. Um and didn't address the other factors that were causing issues either within the diet or within the care of the horse. And I didn't really know how to seek out other options. So it was very largely influenced by like whoever I was training or boarding with at the time. And I think a lot of horse people can attest to this. And with some boarding facilities, depending on the trainers or barn owners you board with, it gets to the point where even if you want to do things with your horse and you ask, they'll just say, no, you can't do this with your horse. No, you can't change their feed. If you want to change their feed, you need to leave. Uh, So for people who are trying to learn, there's barriers there as well. Because even if in theory you learn and you want to try to do something a different way, and you've learned that it's actually very well researched. If the person that you board or train with doesn't believe that, they're not really going to care, and they're going—they'd view it as an insult to themselves to agree with you if they feel they know more, even if your side's more researched. So even if you own the horse there's barriers to try to stop you from actually caring for it how you like or discourage you from learning how to do that because people will treat you like you can't access that information elsewhere. And it goes into as far as like even trainers not wanting their students to ever train with other people. I've known trainers who go as far as not even wanting their kids to clinic with other people, which is insane. It's all about control and not allowing for outside opinions so that they can't have their opinions tainted by other equestrians which is a problem because I truly think any good trainer who believes in their program and knows what they're talking about should be able to field like basically any question their students or boarders have and handle it with grace even if it's a challenging question um, and explain their philosophy and how they do things and why it is the best way they should be able to do that for their students and not be fearful of the opinions of other trainers um, potentially being taken in. And no, I agree with it. Like, for example, if you're a trainer that is very holistic and uses rewards-based methods and have it has a student who wants to go to, like, Clinton Anderson or something, something like that is warranted. If, they're, if it's very conflicting with what you're doing, that's warranted. But the idea that trainers should have a monopoly on their students to the point where they should not get any outside opinions is so insane. And it's directly correlated with the need for control in the horse world and the want to control other people's animals. And that is so pervasive. Like, Trainers and barn owners are very helpful when they're good and they can help people who don't have the experience to do that make feed plans and take care of their horses and they can be helpful but when they don't help these people be self-sufficient when the people want to be or when they refuse to consider potential other positions uh, for training or care of the horse uh, if the client is open to that and wants to discuss it or they can't at least like tell the client why they don't agree with it then that's a problem like It's all about, like, there's this weird ego thing and a lack of desire for self-sufficiency in the horse world because I guess the idea is you can make more money if your clients are utterly dependent on your every thought and wish, Um, which is so odd to me, but... Yeah like I think this is how we create these really brainwashed types of people who are like really tied to equipment and beliefs like that because they're taught to like base their entire identity in the equipment they use like the methods their trainer teaches them and like I mentioned in the last uh, podcast being like gritty and brave and getting on big scary horses and doing all these things like they are taught to value themselves that way so then it's hard to disconnect themselves from that area of value because if they stop valuing those things then they probably feel like they don't have any value. Um so it'll be a hard thing to change but I think that this is like I think the point that people should take away from this is mostly that like whether or not you really trust your trainer and barn owner you should always be wanting to look at information yourself and learn more and be open to hearing the opinions of other people. Um and you should be learning how to determine a credible source critical thinking skills are something that people aren't taught enough um, and learning how to determine and value credible sources so that you can see like even when you're like checking what your trainer has told you just because you trust in like your trainer doesn't necessarily mean they're the the expert on everything that they're talking about so if you find a more credible source it's okay to not always agree and blindly follow the things that everyone around you does or the things that people teach you do you're allowed to be your own person and find out new things. So I recommend looking into credible sources and learning how to define those and recognizing the fact that the opinions of a trainer can largely just be that. Like, unless they're founded in scientific research or something like that, it's largely opinion-based and they don't necessarily have any merit. And when we're also talking about welfare pertaining to horses, the opinions of the trainer and the trainer's ability to get the horses to do things that they want them to do or their ability to win ribbons on those horses does not mean that the welfare is good. There is no correlation between good welfare and winnings or the amount of tricks a horse knows. There's none. Horses will perform when they're very unhappy even, so we can't be using the ability for the trainer to get them to do things as a justification for the ethics of the, the program. It doesn't hold up. And we need to value, yeah, how the horse feels is first and foremost when it's welfare discussion, like nothing related to training or how much the trainer has done or how cool they are, how many people they know matters when we're discussing welfare, because it's solely related to the horse perception and the likelihood of it causing the horse stress or discomfort. Um, And a lot of normalized things we do do that. And again, like stress and discomfort is a normal part of life. No matter how hard you try to advocate for your horse, you're not going to be able to completely alleviate that for them. Um, but we can do our best to do that and I think there's a lot of things that we know from research are inherently problematic and stressful to horses that are continued to be used and denied and like the worst part is people are using them while being in denial of how they work or how stressful or how uncomfortable they are to the horse and I'm of the mind that at least if you're going to use equipment or certain types of methods that are stress inducing or pain inducing you should be recognizing the potential to cause pain rather than denying it and making up excuses like oh horses have really thick skin they don't care if they really didn't want to do it they wouldn't because all those excuses are completely baseless and have absolutely no proof or evidence on their side to suggest the validity of them so it's just like blowing hot air and just like denying something at that point like consider how your horse feels, and also consider softening equipment, because it might surprise you. Like, honestly, the amount of horses I've gotten in at this point, after for years being taught that some horses just need harsh bits, and that they're just too tough to handle, and too difficult, I've yet to actually meet a horse that is like that. I've gotten horses who have had bolting issues, bronching issues, rearing issues, all sorts of problems that have been tried to be fixed with certain types of equipment, and when they get here, I take all of their shit off, and use, like, the softest Like snaffle, I can find or go bitless, and I've yet to actually find a horse that cannot make that transition. Um, All of them are fixable. I don't think that the horse that actually needs a harsh bit exists. I think it's the rider that needs it. The equipment that is used on the horse is an indicator of the rider and, like, the horse's stage of training. But no stage of training justifies unnecessarily harsh equipment, in my opinion. There's always a way to fix it with something softer, in my opinion, and it's changed, like, what I'm willing to use. But I used to justify a lot of harsh equipment. And now it's, like, I get these horses in where people have said that they need this, that, or the other thing. And I'm taking it off and putting them in less and not meeting problems and in fact the horses are better and less stressed which has led me to believe that uh, the the equipment is also kind of part of this whole self-fulfilling prophecy thing because sometimes when horses are stressed or a lot of times when horses are stressed it's due to the equipment that they are wearing it's not due to the uh, the the environment or them being naughty or whatever people are thinking. Like a lot of times the equipment is just the tip of the iceberg where they're like, finally, I cannot take this anymore because this equipment adds enough discomfort. Screw this. And then they keep meeting behaviors that they associate, the rider will associate and attribute to other things when really the equipment is a top contributor. So frustrating. Um, I would love to see a shift in the mindset in the horse world and start seeing more equipment regulations, especially in show jumping. Um, and see more of a movement to allow riders the opportunity to use kinder methods like for example being able to ride bitless in dressage like I think if we're going to let all sorts of bits fly like in the show jumping ring or double bridles and spurs fly in dressage at the upper levels then you should be welcoming and opening the door for people who wish to do the same things with less because at the end of the day you're judging it on the horse and how the horse goes and presents themselves and even if the horse went equally comparable to a bitted horse in dressage I think the bitless one would pin lower with most judges simply due to the tradition but with that in mind like if the horse can go in and perform just as well as a bitted horse bitless they should be allowed to be there Um, and we should be making more rules to enable showing in soft equipment and doing more holistic welfare first approaches in training and to promote that then we should rules that enable people to do the opposite Um, especially if we're going to pretend that welfare is a top care in the horse world and it really should be because the vast majority of horse people you meet will talk about how much they love the horse and how they're in this for the horse until they're blue in the face but then a lot of the treatment that they do doesn't reflect that and I don't think that a lot of people mistreat horses to be malicious it's what they've been taught and conditioned to do and what they've been taught is right so there's this weird disconnect and they don't view it for what it actually is and they don't view it as being cruel even when they're yelling at and getting mad at a horse and calling it a shitty horse and taking it out on the horse like that they view it as different because it's just what they've grown up watching and happening so it's a really difficult thing to change because it requires people really self-reflecting and actually understanding why they feel certain ways and understanding why they react certain ways which is a lot harder to do than just educating people because it's also trying to encourage people to become more emotionally intelligent um, and understand where some of their biases arise from So it'll take a while, but I'm hoping that it'll happen soon because I think that we're going to be our own demise otherwise and the industry is going to go under because I just repeatedly see people proudly defending really harsh training methodologies um, and posting videos of them gleefully being really mean to horses and having these highly stressed horses go in these dangerous situations where they're at high risk of injuring themselves and people are just laughing and calling them stupid horses and stuff and when they're called out by other people they'll just laugh at that too and poke fun at it and call it like tree huggers and say that like the horse world's going crazy and stuff and it gets posted publicly for everyone else to see and it makes us all look bad at it because it makes it look like horse people just don't care and like we're not even willing to consider how we do things and potentially altering it to be more ethical because like I said there's always room for improvement and you have to be so far up your own ass to think that there's no room for improvement in how you can do anything and that there's like that, that you've reached the pinnacle of doing everything right because I don't know the average horse person no matter how well their horse is cared for if they're being honest with themselves they can probably identify at least a few areas where the care in theory could be better, because honestly, like, unless you're literal, like, the god of horses, there's probably going to be something you can do better, even if it's a little thing, that in the grand scheme of things doesn't matter that much, like, even if you're doing the best you can, there's probably things that if you looked at it, and you broke it down, and were like, I if I moved to some bigger plot of land in this ideal temperature or whatever, or completely redid the drainage on my property, my horses could be happier. And those things might not be realistic to do immediately or ever, but, like, in theory, there usually is something that could make them happier if we're being honest with ourselves, but a lot of people are not. Uh, So, Basically, that's that like this isn't about villainizing any types of training. It's about honestly looking at like what's best for our horses and where to move forward um, and considering just being more soft and considerate in our training approach because we've been conditioned to not be that way. And it's been of an it's been a natural thing largely because like horses are work animals. We haven't really had to consider their feelings and it hasn't been something that's been historically considered. So it's normal for all of us to kind of be in this state of being where We're not actively considering that because that's what we've been taught to do. Um, And yeah, so that's that. We just need to alter our thinking and start to grow more because we have stagnated, I think. And there's a lot of people who are in denial and stubborn and not wanting to accept new ideas for things. So that's my dream and that's my goal. So thank you for listening everyone to another podcast. I'm going to be posting my Mad Barn podcast next after this one. That one's going to be talking about forage replacements for hay in the, in the event of like a hay shortage and just talking about the viability of that and some options that people have for stretching hay, um, during shortages. So that should be a really fun one to do. So i highly recommend checking that out and also don't forget to check out my stores i've had a bunch of new product releases for summer i have some lovely new short sleeve summer riding shirts that are affordably priced and super cool um, sweat wicking and well ventilated they're comfy and I think they look good like I mean the opinions up to the individual interpretation I love how they look um, you can shop those on the amor equestrian.ca website a-m-o-r-e equestrian.ca and all of my stuff is under the milestone page those are my product releases the rest of the stuff belongs to my friend Callie who runs the business everything ships out of Canada so if you're in Canada you don't have to pay customs for Americans the shipping is still cheap and it gets to you quite quickly because it's actually faster to ship into the U.S. from Canada, and cheaper, surprisingly, um, which sucks. (laughs) So... Um, Sucks for Canadians, I mean, but yeah, so you can check that out there. I also have some saddle pads still available on the website and there are some limited quantities of bridles still available. I have a big bridle restock coming on June 30th. So if you're interested in buying from the restock, I recommend heading to the website then to shop the restock. Um, And then we're going to be having some of our new releases coming in over the next couple of months, like the Western bridle and the Rose Gold bitless and bitted bridles. So those will be happening soon soon. And then, um, we will, yeah, be just continuing to develop that. I have some more releases for clothing coming out soon. I still have some samples for the base layer samples available. And then I also have a new base layer release for the summer that's available as well. The samples are really low price. They're basically priced at cost because uh, we just we got a sample order in, and then the sizes weren't quite what we wanted. They were too small. So um, we're selling all of those. The breeches fit small. The base layers are more true to size, uh, but I would size up if you don't like a snug fit uh they're priced quite cheap as well the base layers i think are only like 35 dollars canadian right now so i recommend checking that out if your size is available we're dwindling on sizes but there's still some available um, so you can check those out i also am working on a bunch of tutorials for my patreon we're doing a desensitization series and i'm doing a positive reinforcement um, starting under saddle series with horses, and there's already a bunch of tutorials already live for like teaching target training and whatnot. Most of the tutorial access is for people in the gold tier, which is the $8 a month tier and above, and that's $8 a month Canadian, so I think it's like $6 US. Um, And so they have access to most of the tiers. If you want free training help, well, not free, like free with the tier. Um, Training help tiers are like the milestone student tiers, which are the higher tiers. If you're interested in getting training help and advice, I would recommend checking those out as well. And yeah, you can subscribe for as little as a dollar a month to support me and also see some behind the scenes product development and other stuff like that. You can check that out at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash S-D-E-Q-U-U-S. If you're interested in checking out any of the Mad Barn supplements, you can do so on the Mad Barn website, madbarn.com if you're American or .ca if you're Canadian, and you can use my code S-D-E-Q-U-U-S for a discount. You can also get a free diet analysis on their website. I'll link that all down below in the description, and you can check all that out. Yeah, so don't forget to check out my pages and my new product releases. We're still looking to move a bunch of quantity because I'm still catching up after all of Milo's vet bills. He's supposed to be going in for an arthroscopy soon, so that's going to add to it. Um, So it's been really hectic. I've been falling behind, but we're getting there. So yeah, check out all that stuff. I really appreciate the support and the love for my products. And I hope that you guys enjoyed this podcast. Thanks so much and have a great day.